This is New York State of Crime. A true crime podcast exploring New York's most disturbing criminal cases. I'm Brenna. And I'm Peter. And welcome to our episode eight. Episode eight. And this week we're going upstate for real. How far upstate? Well, we are going to Rochester, New York, where I've never been. So you'll have to fill me in. I know you've been there. Yeah. So upstate, um, so it's really western New York, I think. Yes. Um, Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I've never been there. You've been there twice, right? Yeah. How would you describe the city? Uh, It's a historic city, uh, definitely somewhere that noticeably got hit by the uh, post-industrial issues. Uh, It's the home of Kodak, Mm. Kodak Cameras and Mm -hmm. Film. Um, It's the home of... Genesee beer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. official beer of a lot of bad decisions, I guess. Um, <laughs> and like Xerox, right? I think so, yeah. I think I read that when I was reading up about Rochester. Yeah, so it was really like a post-industrial, like, um, yeah, one of those like n- New England vibes, but not in New England, right? Of like yeah, nor- that kind northern of thing. cities. So like I know it actually most in the context of like linguistically it's uh, indicative of the northern city's vowel shift, which is like an accent, mm-hmm. um, particular to Western New York and, and like Canada and like Great Lakes region, where, um, so to me, they talk funny, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Uh, so like, like A's sound like E's and O's, U's sound like O's and like things like that. So, uh, yeah. it's also home to the, uh, Kodak Eastman house, uh, yeah. a very prominent museum, Rochester is also home to the University of Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology, and the Visual Studies Workshop. Uh, the last two schools were uh, uh, schools I seriously considered when I was uh, thinking about which grad school to go to. Right, I remember. That's why we knew a bit about Rochester. Um, yeah, so that's where we're headed. We're going to cover some cases known together as the alphabet murders. They're also called the double initial murders. Mm. And this is the abduction and murders of three young girls near their homes in Rochester, New York, in the early 1970s. So I'm just going to go through them chronologically, and then we can talk more about this case as a whole. So we start on November 16th of 1971. When at 4.20 p.m., 10-year-old Carmen Cologne, her grandmother sent her on an errand to a pharmacy next to their house. And the pharmacist, when Carmen went up to pick up the prescription, told Carmen that she'd have to wait because the prescription was not ready yet. Carmen suddenly seemed freaked out and said, I gotta go, I gotta go. And she left the store. She was seen entering a vehicle that was parked outside. So just 40 minutes after this, around 5 p.m. that evening, drivers on Interstate 490 saw a young girl, naked from the waist down, running away from a dark-colored Ford Pinto. She was waving her arms to get the attention of passing vehicles, but nobody stopped to help her. Someone uh, who witnessed what was later believed to be Carmen getting led back into that vehicle saw a man pulling her by the arm, and at least 38 people, 38 people saw something as this played out on the side of the highway, but nobody reported anything until three days later. Can you imagine? What is wrong with people? An 11-year-old girl, a 10-year-old girl, half-naked, 
running down the side of a highway. It was like near an exit ramp that they right. pulled over, apparently. A man's pulling her by the wrist away, uh, back into the vehicle. She doesn't look happy. She's missing her clothes. She's clearly asking for help. 38 people drive on by. Unbelievable. Right. Okay, so at 7.50 p.m. that evening, Carmen was finally reported missing by her family after not returning from that errand. Um, before we continue, let me tell you a bit about Carmen and her family. So Carmen was born and grew up in Puerto Rico before her family relocated to upstate New York. She spoke Spanish at home, and so she was largely raised by her grandparents, who lived in Rochester. She had recently been suffering intense nightmares and was also struggling in school to adapt to the English curriculum and dealing with bullies who were targeting her for um, being Hispanic, essentially. So rude. Mm -hmm. um, so she was just, like, struggling a little bit. You know, it's not easy being 10. It's not easy being a new kid around town. Um, and that certainly um, colored her experience of growing up in Rochester. So two days after Carmen was reported missing, teenage boys located a body in a ravine off of Interstate 490 near the village of Churchville, just outside of Rochester. The medical examiner later confirmed that this was Carmen Cologne and that she had been raped, her oh. skull had been fractured, and she had been strangled Jesus to death. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, while police interrogated numerous suspects, nothing panned out in this immediate investigation. And in 1972, um, so that was the following year, they put up five large billboards near Rochester asking for the public's help with solving Carmen's murder. But no tips came in from this. Um, but you can just take a look at that billboard. It's very indicative of like the 70s milk carton imagery. Uh, it says, do you know who killed Carmen Cologne? Oh, yes. Please help before it happens again. Rewards for information total $6,000. Be a secret witness. No clue is too small. And then it provides information on how to call in or um, write in a tip. And says your identity will be kept secret. And it features this um, very nice school photo of Carmen. So that case, like I said, I mean, even with these large billboards right outside of town, um, begging for answers, um, nothing ever panned out from this. Um, and nothing happened for a while until a similar disappearance happened just the next year. And this was April 2nd of 1973. Joyce Walkowitz sent her 11-year-old daughter, Wanda Walkowitz, to a corner store to get some items for their dinner. Wanda had fiery red hair. You can see her picture at the top there. She's a real cutie. Uh, she was described as very precocious, um, but her family had been struggling recently because her father had died suddenly. Oh. So Wanda was stepping up at just 11 years old to help her mother, Joyce, raise her younger sister, Michelle. The three of them lived at 132 Avenue D in Rochester, New York, which is just north of the like central downtown area. So Wanda's on her way to the store to provide her mother with this help with getting stuff for dinner. And on her walk, Wanda ran into her friends. This was three siblings who um, were friends with Wanda from school. They were also doing a grocery run for their mother, but had been sent to a different grocery store, but it was kind of on the same way. So Wanda walked with them to Conkey Avenue and Avenue D. And this is just like, her house is here, and it's just like the next street. Right. It's not like a far walk as an 11-year-old. It's, it's really the corner store. So she walked them there, and then she was going to the store like 
like across the street, like catty corner. And there she brought, uh, she bought some bread, milk, cigarettes for her mom and diapers around 5.15 p.m. She came out of the store and saw those sibling friends up ahead of her. And they looked back and saw that Wanda was having trouble carrying all these bags, but it had just started to rain a lot that afternoon. So the siblings faced ahead and hurried home rather than waiting for Wanda like they usually would. Um, as they looked back one last time, they saw a brown car driving towards them. And when they looked around uh, to see Wanda one more time, she was gone. So that is the last reported sighting of Wanda Walkwitz. And when she did not return home that evening, her mother, Joyce, reported her missing around 8 p.m. Uh, her mother was later treated at Rochester General Hospital for shock. She was very disturbed by this. And Wanda's family, friends, and teachers all commented at the time that she was a smart girl who knew her way around the city. She made this grocery run on the regular and would never have willingly gotten into a car with someone she didn't know. So this is the second girl to have gone missing in Rochester, and investigators soon realized the similarities to Carmen Cologne's case and began searching the roadsides for evidence of Wanda as well. Their search ended the following day around 10 a.m. when they found Wanda face down in the grass next to a hill near a rest stop off of Route 104 in Webster, New York. Damn. Yeah. So Wanda was found fully clothed. She was wearing a patterned coat and a white and blue little dress. The investigators believe she had been redressed by the killer. Oh. Yeah. Um, the medical examiner concluded that she had died of asphyxiation as well, likely being strangled by a belt. Oh. And she had also been raped. They found offensive wounds on her body, indicating that she had tried to fight back, but she was very slight, very small little girl, so they said she didn't really have a chance. They also weirdly found several white cat hairs on Wanda's body. Uh, but when they asked the Walkwoods family about this, they said, we don't own a cat. Wanda doesn't have any friends who own a cat. So that was seen as a significant bit of evidence at the time. The groceries and the Pall Mall cigarettes that Wanda had been carrying from the store were not found at the scene and have never been found anywhere. So it is um, part of the evidence that would be significant to find and recover in this case. And they did recover significant forensic evidence from Wanda's body, including, unfortunately, traces of semen uh, and a partial palm print on her neck. Uh, However, these have not led to any leads either. Over 45 years later, this case, too, remains cold. So recapping so far, we've got two girls around the same age. They both are, like, doing a regular errand for their parent or, like, guardian. They're in a familiar area, like, a run they've done before, and they're just seemingly, like, snatched, right? Mm -hmm. It's, like, the classic fear of the 1970s um, or, like, parents in, like, the 70s and 80s and 90s. Like, just, like, your kid getting just snatched up into a van. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're, like, did your mom have that fear? Not really. Really? No. I mean, we lived in a uh, subdivision that was really, really far away from mm -hmm. everything else. That's true. And um, really no traffic except those who live there mm. managed to bother going down that road. Mm. Okay, yeah. I, I remember having the by-proxy fear of getting snatched because everyone was always afraid we were going to get snatched. Yeah. Um, so even in the early 90s, this continued. 
Um, okay, so going forward, uh, they start to make some connections. So investigators later learned from a friend of Wanda that a few nights before she was killed, Wanda and her friend had been walking near some train tracks on Conkey Avenue, and this is right near that grocery store, um, when a man came out of the bushes and began following them. Oh. And they were wondering, is this man someone who was targeting Wanda, and was this the same man who later was following her on her walk home from the store? And I can imagine at this point that the young girls and their parents in Rochester were becoming afraid that there was a killer on the loose targeting any girls that were out alone. And unfortunately, it was less than a year when the killer seemed to strike again. It was November 26th of 1973 when 11-year-old Michelle Manza was reported missing by her mom when she didn't return home from school at the right time. Michelle was last seen by her classmates just around 3 p.m. walking towards a shopping plaza near her school. And apparently Michelle was actually going around looking for her mom's purse that she had left like out while shopping. So she was just like being a good hmm. kid and like helping her mom find something. And about 10 minutes after this sighting by her classmates, witnesses reported seeing Michelle get into a tan vehicle and they reported seeing that vehicle driving very fast on Ackerman Street. The witnesses believed that the girl in the car, Michelle, was crying. Around 5.30, someone saw, again, a tan vehicle stopped on Route 350 with a flat tire. The witness uh, stopped to offer his help, but the man who was in the tan car seemed to push the girl behind his back, obscuring her face, and he also stood in such a way that the license plate was covered and could not be seen. This witness also said that he saw the man make sort of a fist a threatening gesture and he felt threatened and backed away um, didn't feel like he could intervene so on november 28th which was just two days later michelle manza was found dead face down in a ditch next to a road in macedon new york which is 15 miles east of rochester michelle had also been raped strangled and she also had blunt force trauma to her head they also found white cat fur on her clothing. Hmm. The medical examiner reported Michelle had eaten about an hour before her death, and it was likely hamburger and onions or beef and onions. This led investigators to re-examine a tip that had come in. Uh, somebody thought they'd spotted Michelle at a fast food restaurant in Penfield, New York, around 4.30 on the day she disappeared. This witness saw Michelle with a young man about 25 to 35 years old, six feet tall, with dark hair. So it's believed maybe he fed her um, a hamburger, and that was what was found in her stomach. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the most credible lead they had so far, but ultimately it did not lead to anything. Wow. Yes. So, again, these, now we have three murders within a three-year period. They have a lot in common. So all the victims were preteen girls. They were known to be kind of loners or bullied by their peers. They all grew up in working class Catholic families. They all disappeared from Rochester, New York on days that were rainy. Oh. Right? It's weird. Their bodies were all found in similar situations in nearby towns and all had been redressed after their murders. All the girls had been raped and then strangled. And eerily, each of their names was an alliteration. Her first and last name began with the same letter, Carmen Cologne, Wanda Walkowitz, and Michelle Manza. Oh, how weird. Right? And, if that's not enough, each 
girl's body was found in a town that also started with the same letter of her names. Carmen Cologne in Churchville, what? Wanda Walkowitz in Webster, and Michelle Manza in Macedon. If that's not weird enough, these are also the third, 13th, and 23rd letters of the alphabet. I don't like that. Right? So this is why this case, you know, apart from being just a horrific series of murders of young girls, um, has gotten so much attention and been dubbed the alphabet or double initial murders. How could that be a random coincidence, right? This is what people debate. Um, Was this perpetrator somehow drawn to the victims by their names or driven by some weird obsession with letters or patterns? Um, and, you know, if that was the case, how did he find three girls with all these other things in common who had alliterative names? Right? Yeah. It's so weird. That's obsessive. And it would have indicated a level of stalking and knowledge of the victims that would seemingly give away his identity, right? The, the people that I read about who were trying to solve this case said, well, the only way they could know this level of information about them, know that they were from working class Catholic families, know that they had trouble in school, know a bunch of girls around this age, and then be able to pick out those with double initial names would be someone who was a teacher or a social worker or, you know, a counselor in the school, like something where you would just have that information compiled for you already. Someone who had access to vulnerable children. Exactly. And who maybe they would have trusted if he ran up in a car and said, right. hey, do you need a ride home? Or, um, hey, your mom sent me, etc. you know, the drill. Yeah. Right? So that would make sense. Um, but nothing has ever come of this case. After their murders, all three of these girls were buried in Rochester's Holy Sepulchre Cemetery, and public outrage, of course, grew with each case. After Michelle Manzo's murder, the police finally released a sketch of the man that witnesses had seen with her, and this was their most credible lead. You can take a look and tell me what you think of that photo. Huh. Well, he looks like a typical-looking man from the 70s. Exactly. Uh... You know, I suppose they would have drawn onto him whatever clothes were popular at the time, but uh, still, that doesn't look like a remarkable person or somebody who was, like, readily identifiable in any way, really. Yeah, I mean, he looks like he has, like, brown or dark hair, a pretty straight nose, maybe, like, a little bit of a goatee-mustache combo. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, like a plaid shirt. A jacket, like a windbreaker type jacket almost, and jeans. Like, very normal. Yeah. So I don't think this helped a lot. I mean, they knew it was a white man. They knew he was fairly young. Um, But also, this was only the man that was seen with one of the girls. So it could, I mean, what are the odds? But it could have just been that he was dating with Michelle and he wasn't the killer. So even this lead wasn't, like, fully going to lead them to the killer. Right. So police also started an anonymous hotline hoping that tips would come in from other people in Rochester, but none ever came. Since the early 1970s, over 800 potential suspects have been interviewed, but none of these three cases have ever been solved. It's just crazy. I mean, you would think, but I think a little bit of it is like just cases from the 70s. It's just this... We talked about it in our first episode, but it's just this, like, black hole where 
there wasn't enough information. There wasn't enough surveillance of people the same way we have today. Mm-hmm. Like that, we just wouldn't have known a lot of the things that we would just we would just naturally know today. Right, and just the the inability to process evidence back at that time right. that we have now. Which uh, we'll get to in a moment. So the the evidence that did survive, but. Um, so there are a few small leads. Um, so first, some investigators do believe strongly that Carmen Cologne's murder may have been committed by someone close to her, and that though the M.O.s are similar to the other murders, a different person may have committed the crimes against Wanda and Michelle. And the main suspect in Carmen's murder was her uncle, Miguel Cologne, who had been living with her mother as sort of a common-law husband so i'm not sure what happened to her father but apparently her uncle was kind of standing in as her father um and again as i mentioned carmen had been mainly being raised by her grandparents right so it sounds like maybe there was some drama going on in her mom's life so uncle miguel had bought a car that closely matched the description of the car that witnesses saw following carmen on I-490. So this is weird and suspicious, but also many investigators note that a brown Ford in the 1970s was not exactly rare. No, that's a a very common car for that time period. Yeah. And the color as well. Absolutely. It it was, you know, back and forth between whether it was brown or tan, but like either way, both of those would be very common. I mean, that's subjective. I would say that witnesses who saw a brown car and witnesses who saw a tan car probably saw the same car. Mm -hmm. It was probably kind of light brown, kind of beige. And then I think, oh, I forget. It was a Ford. One of them said a Ford Pinto. Uh Uh-huh. And one of them said a Ford... start with an F2. Fiesta. No. Fiesta? A Ford Fiesta. No, 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 no. Well, I can't remember, but wait, let me look at my Google history. (coughs) I definitely looked up earlier. Um... Okay, well, I'm not sure, but, you know, like, just, it was a very, whatever car they reported to have seen was, like, a very common car. Sure. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Uncle Miguel had bought this car that looked similar to the car the witnesses thought was following Carmen on the interstate. When police searched this car, they found out that it had been recently cleaned very intensely, and the dealers who sold the car to him said they had not cleaned it, so it seems it had been cleaned by Uncle Miguel recently. They also found a doll that belonged to Carmen in this car. However, you know, however, whichever way you see it, this could be not so strange, seeing as this was her uncle, um, she would have been in his car regularly. However, possibly the weirdest thing is that just four days after Carmen's death, Uncle Miguel moved to Puerto Rico. Now, this is where their family is from. And allegedly, he told a friend that he had done something wrong in Rochester, and that's why he had to move back. In March of 1972, investigators from Rochester traveled to Puerto Rico to question Miguel, and he attempted to flee from them from in uh, San Juan. He was ultimately extradited to Rochester to be questioned. He was not able to give an alibi for himself for the date of Carmen's murder, 
but there was no physical evidence linking him to the murder either. So this lack of alibi was not enough to keep him, and the police did not pursue him any further. Uncle Miguel Colon committed suicide at age 44 in 1991 after shooting and wounding both his wife and his brother in a domestic violence incident. Wow. So there's a lot of reason to put your eyes on Uncle Miguel. Right, yeah. But it's obviously not clear um, if he's tied at all to these other two cases. There were a few other credible suspects that came up, including a serial rapist named Dennis Termini, who was active in Rochester around the same time, the serial killer Kenneth Bianchi, who was famously known as one of California's hillside stranglers, was also seen as a suspect, and another killer named Joseph Nasso, but physical evidence could never corroborate any of their involvement. Furthermore, the only physical evidence that did exist was the bodily fluids that were found on Wanda Walkowitz, as the evidence that was collected from Carmen and Michelle's crime scenes were either lost or destroyed during evidence collection and the ensuing 40-some years of, you know, storage. Mm -hmm. So it was not until 1995 that Carmen Colon's mother made her first public statement about her daughter's death. She said, quote, if I could die knowing who killed my Carmencita, I could die more peacefully than I have lived. It's the only thing I want in my life, to know that this person had to pay for the terrible things he did to my little girl. If the person who did this could have any compassion, he would see the pain and suffering the families of these little girls have gone through for all this time. And that's pretty much where the case stands. They have some leads on Uncle Miguel, but not enough to charge him. Then he dies. They can't do anything. And nothing else has ever panned out um, in enough way to pursue justice. So the DNA never came to anything. The DNA never came to anything. They own, they do have DNA. They still have DNA from Wanda Walkowitz. And it's tested and sequenced and there's just nothing to compare it to. Yes, seemingly. Um, no so, hits off of like Ancestry.com. Right. Cetera, That's what I know. wonder. Like at this point, if he did three murders within a three year period, if we're assuming this is all the same person, or even if it was just two, um, but he must have struck again. Like, right? Like... It's not like you're going to suddenly be scared straight in 1973. It's not even like we had DNA at that time to scare someone to into not doing it anymore. Right. If you were already, like, doing this MO that was so clear-cut and practiced almost. Like, he was very... There's many parts of this that were um, so similar. Like, he would always go outside. He would always abduct them in Rochester, but then go outside into the outskirts, but in different directions mm -hmm. to dump their bodies. And he would always dump their bodies near like a, an exit ramp or a, um, a rest stop, but like near a highway. So it's clear he was on a highway and through Rochester a lot. We assume he may have lived in Rochester to have like been comfortable in that area to abduct them, but then was taking them outside to kill them. So anyway, the MO was just like very clear. You assume it's the same person, but they never struck again, never got caught to get that DNA to, to you know, ding up in, in the computer systems that we have now. It's very strange. But what doesn't make sense to me is the... Uh, compulsive or ritualistic or religious component mm. to these uh, the initials the yeah. the dump sites the correspondence in in name uh, you know alliteration mm -hmm. number of that letter in the alphabet um, what the hell is that about and why where 
where did he go? Like, you, you have an elaborate ritual that you've concocted, and you only need to do it three times to fulfill it? I mean, if it's due to the ritual, I mean, you could say he, like, he got every letter of the alphabet that had a three in it. Like, if we're taking up that, like, the numbers and the letters are significant, mm -hmm. he picked the third, thirteenth, and twenty-third letters. There's no other letters with a three in it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um... So, like, he could have completed a sequence. Right. Like, if we're going that route of theory, then then he's done. But, like, I can't imagine from what we know about, like, killer psychology that that would have fulfilled him unless he just, like, died after that and we never, he never committed another crime so we wouldn't know about him. I mean, all Catholic girls, too. Right. So you would think maybe he's within the group. I mean, it could, the religious component could be something practical like you said he knew people in his community people mm -hmm. in his community are going to be catholic like mm -hmm. he presumably was but then you would think he would come up as a suspect if the community would not have been that large that they would have known someone who was being weird around Car carmen you know I don't there's know. no way to know there's no way to know yeah and i couldn't find i mean i assume like uh, with wanda's name wanda walkowitz i assume they're Polish, but I couldn't find anything. Sure, that yeah. sounds very Polish to me, which would have also been Catholic. Right. Uh, and then Michelle Manza, I didn't. It wasn't clear. Um, but yes, even just the fact that like they all were bullied, they were all kind of outcasts, struggling in school. They all had like a family tragedy happen recently, or um, or like something in their family going on. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and for Michelle, who didn't have anything obvious going on in her family, like. She was being more severely bullied than the rest for, like, her size. She was, like, a little bit of a chubby kid. Sure. So just, like, those things. I mean, yes, each one of these things could have been a coincidence, but altogether it's a little bit weird. The weirdest thing, perhaps, to me, if it was the main motive is, like, pedophilia and rape, is, like, if you take a look at their pictures, like, they're very different-looking girls. Um, they're all... There is no, like, physical type, seemingly. Right. So that, I mean, obviously is, like, horrible to even think about, but just, like, that's something that is significant. I Usually think. people who do this have a type. Right. But they are all the same age. They are all young girls. Anyway, so this case has never been solved. It's, you know, uh, from what I've read, part of quite the uh, the lore of Rochester, of, like, the urban legends. Right. Um, and, and sort of stories that go around about um, what we might know. And... It seems, uh, if we've gone this long without finding him, I don't really know that there's a lot of hope to finding anything. Um, but it would be awesome if, like you mentioned, that something like ancestry um, DNA testing could help solve this one, since we do have some DNA in this case. I mean, I, how did this person, how did this guy know everything about these girls? Mm -mm. Did, did Uncle Miguel work at the school or something? I mean... Not that we could tell. That would be my first thought, is to go look at people who might have this knowledge. Mm -hmm. How would someone who does not have any sort of uh, given authority or permission to interact with children in, in like a reasonably intimate way, as mm -hmm. far as conversation would go at least, how... How would that person get that information without being someone like that? 
a guidance counselor, yeah. a school employee, and anyone with sort of sanctioned okay. and unmonitored contact mm-hmm. with kids. It's so much information to know right. about them. I mean, even unless like all of the letter stuff is totally coincidence, which like how could it be? That's what I think. And even dumped in cities that that match, like how... I know, and I was looking at the map to be like, well, is there just a lot of cities with a C? And there's not. There's two. Right. (laughs) There's, like, two cities of the... There are two of each, at least. But, like, there's also closer cities with Bs and Gs and Ss. And it's like, you could have gone there. Uh, I don't know. It's very weird. But, like, yeah, even given that if the alphabet thing was not relevant at all he would still, I feel, have to know a lot about them to be choosing a similar victim profile. And it does seem he had a certain control over them when they were in his captivity as well, because both Carmen and Michelle were seen after they'd been kidnapped, before they'd been murdered by other people. Mm -hmm. And while Carmen did signal for help and, you know, a lot of people ignored her, um, they did ultimately both get led back into those cars. Mm -hmm. So there was some level of, like... I don't know, they weren't... It's hard to, like... I'm not trying to blame them that they didn't just, like, sprint away, but, like, there was some sense of, like, his control over them when someone else was present, but he could still be like, no, 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 you're coming with me. I mean, they're just, like, you know, young preteen girls, and, you know, if a, you know, stern adult man is trying to tell them what to do... I mean, back in the day, kids listened more, yeah. I think, and they probably just were compelled to do that because that's, that's what they true. were taught was right. Especially working class. <laughs> For sure. Catholic kids in the 70s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's most of what we have to say about this case. Um, I got a lot of my sources from these two books that have been written about it, Nightmare in Rochester, The Double Initial Murders by Michael Benson and Donald A. Tubman and the book Alphabet Killer, The Truth Story of the Double Initial Murders by Sherry Farnsworth, as well as a couple other websites that we'll post on our website, which is newyorkstateofcrimepodcast.com. And we'll also post some of the pictures that we just talked about on our Instagram. It's New York State of Crime on Instagram. And if you are from Rochester, if you know anything else about this case, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, please um, let us know. Any of the urban lore that comes along with this. Uh, and you can email us. NewYorkStateOfCrime at gmail.com. All right. And come back for our ninth episode um, next week. And I guess Peter's going to bring us... We don't know where you're going to bring us, do we? I don't even know where I'm going to bring us <laughs> next week. It's a surprise to even me. Well, we'll bring you there, and then uh, the following week will be our 10th episode, which I feel like is going to be so exciting. Double digits. Double digits. And it'll be mine, so we'll bring you... We'll both bring you to new places, new heights, things you've never seen. (laughs) New heights and new lows, maybe. New highs, new lows. Just wait and see. Stay tuned and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Mm -hmm. Like and follow, because we have to game the algorithm. Yeah, we'd also love to get your ratings. And if you have any suggestions for the podcast, we'd love to hear that as well. So keep on listening. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you next week. This is New York State of Crime. Bye.